0: Welcome to the Year of Faith Discussion Series presented by the Most Reverend Richard Lennon, Bishop of the Cleveland Catholic Diocese. This series is presented as part of the Holy Father's request that there be opportunities for the faithful to deepen their appreciation and their knowledge of church teaching. From the Cathedral of St. John the Evangelist, Bishop Lennon speaks on the Second Vatican Council's Decree on Ecumenism.
1: One of the main reasons that... The Second Vatican Council was summoned by John XXIII, as he said in his uh, document in uh, January of 1959, was about the disunity among believers. And, and that was then captured uh, first in the document on liturgy. Seems kind of an odd place to have it, but remember the document on liturgy was the first document that was passed, that was promulgated. And so the first paragraph of the document on liturgy is not about liturgy. It is an opening statement about what the Second Vatican Council is all about. And one of the four things is about ecumenism. It's about everyone becoming one. A year later is when the document on ecumenism comes out. But it is interesting. It shows just how significant this issue is. That uh, it is in the uh, the inauguration of we're going to have a council. It's in the first document, even though the first document is on ecumenism, is on liturgy, and yet they put ecumenism in that just to remind everyone of what some of the significant uh, uh, subjects are going to be. As I indicated, the night before our Lord died, he prayed for unity, and if you would just Bear with me in chapter 17 of John's Gospel. They are having their long discourse uh, the night before. He will now go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and will begin his suffering and death. It is not for them that I pray. I pray for those who are to find faith in me through their word, that they may all be one, that they may be one in us, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. So the world may come to believe that it is you who have sent me, and I have given them the privilege which you gave to me, that they should all be one, as we are one. A pretty strong statement before he dies He knows he's leaving the disciples. He promises them the Holy Spirit that comes on Pentecost seven weeks later. But he is really concerned about the unity issue. And as we know, um, we've not done a stellar job about it. You know, remember some of those epistles from St. Paul where he re- recounts for us, some of you say that you belong to Peter. Some of you say that you belong to Mies, Some of you say something else. No, no, we all are one. We're not in divisions. So even in the time of the earliest church, we see where there are divisions. People are trying to uh, establish a view of the Christ event. The first heresy, officially, is in the second century. And it was the denial of the Old Testament that it was not God's word. You and I studied that, remember the first time we came together, that sacred scripture was from God. The first thing they threw out was the Old Testament and most of the New Testament. There was a group called the followers of Martian and they rejected. And now we had the church and we had another expression of it. And that continues, regrettably. One of my professors that I had in school said, you don't keep having division and saying everything is right. Everything is not right. And he even went so far as to say that it is truly a scandal that the unity that Christ wanted has, in fact, been broken so many times. Now, that has a very negative effect when we present ourselves to, say, a non-Christian audience, a non-Christian part of the world, And they say, but you people can't even live together. You people are not all on the same page. And so that the church was very concerned about this. Many of the Protestant uh, denominations, they became very concerned about this back in the 1920s. And so that Christians increasingly in the 1900s came to realize that this reality was really quite unacceptable. The Catholic Church did not get really involved in it until the 1950s, and then in the council in the first half of the 60s comes out to be a very, very strong voice that not only is this unacceptable... Well, that's kind of obvious, but also a very strong voice about we need to work together. And the word that has come down from the 60s is the word ecumenism. Ecumenism, coming together. It's Greek, it it means, you know, we're coming together back from disunity to unity. And so, the ecumenical movement, even though it did begin a little bit earlier, in the 60s, because the Catholic Church gets involved, the largest of the Christian churches gets involved, that all of a sudden energizes the whole whole system. And we begin then to reflect on what does it mean? What did Christ do? What did he intend it to carry on? And how do we begin to look at bringing back a unity to what we now see? If you drive around Cleveland, if you drive around any city or town, you will see one Christian church after another, including Catholic churches. I mean, it's not just, you know, I mean, just look at all of the different churches. It really did begin with just one. You know, those 12 apostles in the upper room that the Holy Spirit came upon. I mean, that was it, along with Mary, excuse me. But the 12 apostles and Mary, that was the story seven weeks after the resurrection. Within 30 or 40 years, there are various breakoffs, there are disagreements, and lack of harmony in what people are holding to. The ecumenical movement, to be very clear, presupposes that the various participants have all been baptized. So ecumenical is not a word that is used when Catholics are talking to Jews or Buddhists are talking to Hindus. Ecumenical, it's the conversation, either Methodists and Catholics are all together who are baptized. The other reality of the world would be interreligious dialogue. We will do that in April. That's just a little tease that there'll be more to come. But we're doing them by groups. These are Christians, share some of what we have, but not everything. And they share differently with within themselves, too. It's not like they're all in harmony you know they have as time has gone on certain things have been um, deleted certain things have been added and every group is different to a greater or lesser degree we'll get into that question next week in 1970 I attended a lecture and the lecture was one of those lectures that you don't forget it was really it was just in the the initial enthusiasm and desire to, you know, to really let's all be one. And I mean, that was, you know, for many of us, I'm sure we remember those days. They were very exciting. You know, instead of having all these Christian churches, we should all be one. We all say that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Now, we say a lot of other things that Other people don't say, and they say things that we don't say, and that's where the divisions happen. But the fundamental point is that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And yet that's where we then began to have that enthusiasm. And this young professor from Catholic University in Washington comes to Boston and gives a talk on the ecumenical uh, imperative that we really need to work towards uh, unity. Well, he took a very strong stand. But he also was very, very honest. And he said, this is going to be only with God's grace will it work. And he said, the issue is that every group, every Christian group, would have certain beliefs that they say comes from God and other beliefs which comes from the church. So, what does that mean? I mean, you know, know, when it comes down to it, what does it mean, what he said? Well, let's take the example of Marriage is forever. That's what the Church teaches. The Catholic Church teaches marriage is indissoluble. Marriage is forever. Other Christians say, well, that was an ideal. But, you know, they really didn't expect everyone to do it. Or for certain activities, such as adultery, that might be a reason that you get a second marriage. Now, they all are reading the same Bible. You know, in Genesis it says, you know, a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife and the two shall become one. In the Gospel of matthew it says that uh, that you know that the intention of God was that two people will live forever together you know they're all reading the same Bible, but there's an example of a different a different position, and what Father Peter was saying was that those who say that marriage is forever because God said so, therefore we can't change it, how do they enter into a dialogue with those who say, well, we've already changed it a bit. We've accommodated to others. Well, every, well, I can't say every, the vast majority of professors in Boston who were teaching religion at Harvard Divinity, Boston University School of Theology, the Jesuit Seminary, Boston College, Andover Newton, the Greek Orthodox, they were all there for this talk because they saw the enthusiasm that people were having. Boy, we've got a real serious issue that nobody has even addressed except for this young guy from you know, from Washington, D.C. And so the ecumenical movement, with its enthusiasm, keeps going forward, and the Catholic Church is part of it. The Catholic Church is in official dialogues internationally with the Orthodox Church, with Anglicanism, with Methodism, with the Baptist, and so on. They have national... Uh, you know conversations going on where the leaders of the you know the, you know the participants and they come out with a lot of common statements you know we each believe that you know that baptism is is fundamental okay and and then they started to put together some of the things that you know that we agree with you i mean we, you know they just did in the United States last no, uh, November, four different churches said, we all agree on the validity of every one, uh, each one's uh, you know, baptisms. Now, that's a step forward. Everyone agrees in those four churches so that progress has been made. Um, probably not as much as a lot of people really wanted to see, but, you know, but it has happened. What the church has taught to the Catholics is that first of all, it's prayer. It's God's work. Now that doesn't mean that we're not involved. You ever hear that old uh, expression, you know, pray as if it all depends on God? and work like it all bo- you know, bo- you know uh, pertains to you? Well, that's sort of what the church is saying, that we have to realize God's involved because there is a change of heart that's involved in the ecumenical, you know, that's needed if the ecumenical movement is going to go forward. There also has to be respect for one another. Now, I remember when I was a young boy, and some of you may, you would never dare, you know, I, you know, and I love my parents dearly, But you would never go into a non-Catholic church. I mean, you just wouldn't do that. You know, I mean, that was the way we were brought up, and that's the way they were brought up, too. So, I mean, I'm not just, you know, finding fault with the Catholic position. But, you know, there was this suspicion that somehow they're different, and we don't need to be with them. Well, in point of fact, there's a lot that we hold in common. Legitimately so, and the ecumenical movement has made progress and has made progress not only on a faith level, but has also made progress on just the humanity of it all. You know that people deserve respect. In fact, in fact, if we hang in there, that'll be the subject for May, because we're going to do then the Declaration of Religious Freedom and what it means. But just, you know another preview, okay? But. So the church is very much involved in this, is trying very much with this whole, um, you, know, uh, you know, aberration, and it is, it's an aberration from what our, our God has asked. You know, where we are is not right. It's not the way it should be. You know, we just can't get comfortable and say, oh, well, that's the way it is. We're supposed to be working for unity. Now, this is a rhetorical question, so don't try to raise your hand, please. How many here remember to ever pray for unity among Christians? How many have that as an intention in their life? A prayer intention? You know, we have that one week in January... And boy, if it snows, then we forget the whole intention because, you know, we don't get out and we don't go to church on Tuesday and Wednesday and and the priest is up there, you know, in the uh, intercessions praying for the unity of Christians. It just doesn't sink in. You know, so we still have a long, long way to go. One of the big issues that we'll start today and then, um, you know, we'll pick up next week is the whole idea of what can we do together and what is not allowed. We can certainly have prayer services. One thing that started in the United States in the 60s and continues, thank God, uh, the Tuesday of uh, Thanksgiving um, week, I've gone to the, uh, the uh, uh, Episcopal uh, Cathedral over there on Euclid, and... Um, And there, there were, you know, the Episcopalians, the Catholics, the Jews, um, you know, the Muslims were there, uh, some Buddhists were there, and other uh, Protestant groups. And we had, you know, a prayer service of thanking, thanking God, you know, for the blessings that we have received. So, you know, and that's no small matter. I mean, there are parts of the world that a Jew and a Muslim would not be in the same building together. You know, they were on Euclid Avenue. You know, so, I mean, you know, we can't be naysayers and say nothing, you know, can be done. In point of fact, we've done some things that are significant, you know, which are very good, you know, and very helpful. We have worked for common causes. You know, for example, uh, uh, two weeks ago, I was on a conference call with many many uh, Protestant leaders here in Northern Ohio, and we were talking about expansion of Medicare, you know, to people in Ohio, and we're, and and and, and uh, in a conversation how we can work together to um, you know to support the effort of our governor, who has indicated an openness to it. So I mean we can pray together. We can work together for common causes in society. We also uh, can, uh, you know, at times worship together. And this is the one that gets a little trickier because what kind of worship and to what degree can one be involved in it? But again, there are ways that we can do that also. So as we speak about ecumenism, Ecumenism is a major thrust of the church. Um, today, for example, the Holy, I mean yesterday, when the Holy Father had his inauguration and he spoke to the Christians and he said, "We welcome our fellow Christians who are from the, uh, you know, the separated you know, churches of the East and the ecclesial communities in the West." He, he he recognized them at his inaugural mass there at St. Peter's. So that, you know, when I was installed here almost seven years ago, there was a section set off for the, you know, the uh, spiritual leaders of other faiths, including, you know, other denominations within uh, Christianity. So as a beginning for our uh, our looking at this, You know, the church is in favor of ecumenism. The church has certainly been the most active in these dialogues. And and a tremendous number of agreements have been made. We believe the same as you believe in this. And then the leaders have signed those. You know, I mean, there was a very important one not too long ago, maybe 10 years ago, between the Catholics and the Lutherans on that whole question of justification. What does your understanding really say? What does ours say? Oh, my Lord, they're not that far apart. So they tinkered with it, and they came out with a a statement that both parties can agree to.
0: You've been listening to the Year of Faith discussion series presented by the Most Reverend Richard Lennon, Bishop of the Cleveland Catholic Diocese. This series is presented as part of the Holy Father's request that there be opportunities for the faithful to deepen their appreciation and their knowledge of church teaching. The entire series is available on our website, dioceseofcleveland.org. That's D-I-O-C-E-S-E of cleveland.org. Thank you for listening.